Hello, and welcome back to Series 2 of Inside Exams. I'm Craig Barton, and I have 15 years of classroom experience as a maths teacher. However, there are things about exams that continue to take me by surprise. So this is the podcast where I head behind the scenes to ask the questions you'll struggle to find answers to anywhere else. I've been back on the road, visiting classrooms across the country to get an idea of what information I can gather from exam boards to better equip you to teach. Hi, my name's Natasha. I teach sociology and psychology. And I would just like to ask how you decide on the questions for the next set of exams. Do you base decisions for the next year's exams on this year's results or feedback at all? Feedback's an interesting one. It's immediately made me think of the annual performance review at work, which in turn has sent a slight shiver up my spine. Being called in for a chat by your boss is brilliant if you work shouting compliments. But there are also times when we have to face the uncomfortable reality that we fell short in some areas and need to make changes. There must be merit in exam boards subjecting their assessments to similar scrutiny. So, do exam boards look back in order to look to the future? And what information would they base subsequent decisions on? To answer your question, Natasha, I'm going to speak to AQA Assessment Design Manager, Georgina, Chair of Examiners for Biology, Michelle, and Owen, who's Head of Curriculum for History. So one of the things I learned in Season 1 of Inside Exams is that it seems there's almost as much work goes on after the exams have been written and set than, than goes into actually creating them. And one of the areas that I was absolutely clueless about is the review process that awarding bodies go through. So my first question is, when are assessment reviews done and why are they done? The assessment reviews tend to happen about a month after the final marks are all in and they actually signify the start of the question paper writing process for the next year. So we don't start writing until we've got feedback from the previous series. Are there different focuses for these reviews or is it just one big review? I mean, there are different focuses. One is to make sure that the feedback that we've gotten from teachers and students by email, verbally, over Twitter, over Facebook, is acted upon. At times, there will be things that we'll decide that we don't want to act upon. And then at times, there'll be things that actually we will have a look at in the review in the light of the question data, how students did on particular questions, just to see if we can make improvements to the examinations, which we have done in history in the past as well. I think from my perspective, although the formal review starts about a month after marking reviews complete. From my point of view, there is work going on before that during the marking because of the monitoring that I would be involved in of, of laws of marking. I'm starting to collect maybe some of that soft data, not just from what teachers or students are emailing in, but what we're actually seeing. So we're starting to get some thoughts together about how questions and question papers have functioned. The data then comes in and we have that meeting around October, November, where we're looking to see, OK, is this confirming what we think's happened? Was it an issue or isn't it an issue? So there's that kind of pre-review process that that's all that information when you're looking at live pupil responses. Gee, so it's a real long term thing, this. Yes, I would say it is. It, it, it's a continual cycle that's merging into one, I would suggest, where you're just constantly getting more information. You're developing 
the team's approach to writing papers and and you're constantly refining and um, improving practice. I love specifics on this and I'm fascinated to get kind of behind the door and into what actually goes on in the awarding bodies. So um, let me ask you this, Georgina, where are you getting all this data from um, to help you with the review and just how deep are you going with it? The main source of the data in terms of numbers comes from the question paper functioning reports, which are also known as QPFRs. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) And you'll love them because they're full of numbers. Now we're talking. (laughs) Things are looking up. So there's lots of different information in there. And we also tend to look historically as well. So we're not just looking at the data for this year, but we're looking at the data from previous years as well. So it helps us to build up a picture over time. And when you say numbers, what are we talking here? Just literally the number of kids who've got different marks on questions or are you breaking that down into cohorts? Just how specific are we going here? Question paper functioning reports contain lots of different types of data. Typically we have mean marks. We're able to look at how the papers correlate with each other and how they correlate against the subject. We've got quite a lot of item level data. So for each item or question, we have information that tells us how well it discriminated. So we've got a discrimination index. And then we've also got a facility index as well. So it tells us how hard or easy the question was for students. We also have item level distributions, so we're able to see per question how students performed on that particular question for a levels of response question, typically something that's got a higher mark, six or nine marks. We would expect to see a normal distribution, obviously for the point mark questions, one, two, three, four, we're not necessarily looking for that, but yeah, it is quite detailed. And then of course we can manipulate it in lots of different ways. So we can rank order the questions from easiest to hardest, um, rank order them in terms of how well they discriminated, There's a plethora of data out there, but it's obviously not the only data that we look for. As Owen's indicated, we pull a lot of data from customers. What are they saying? So we merge the two together. Wow, I'm getting excited about getting my hands on this spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah, Michelle. One of the things we'll look at in science are we will look at per question. When we write a paper, we aim at a particular standard of attainment. And so we will spend quite a bit of time in those review meetings looking at the statistics as to where the question actually performed. Right. So if we intended it to be a question aimed at grades eight and nine, is that where the question performed or was it maybe slightly too accessible and actually lots of students around grade six or seven were getting marks or was it too hard? Owen, where does um, subject expertise come into this? So is it all just kind of relying on info from data and info from, from the public or, or do the examiners or, or an AQA... People, does their subject expertise come into play at all? Yeah, I think in terms of deciding what feedback that you get from teachers and students and examiners as well, what what type of feedback is something that needs further investigation? Yes. You know, a lot of the stuff that we'll see during the summer in terms of feedback over Twitter, you can you can see it and think, well, that's just people venting after an exam. Yes. And that's fine. But if there is feedback on a particular question yes. where, let's say at A-level, you might have people who who might who might challenge the basis of the question. Mm. At, at that point, you will refer with the chiefs and the chairs and the lead examiners. They are very much the experts. They have yes. an awful lot of, especially in history, where we have 
30 different topics at GC, or at A-level and 20 or 16 at GCSE, there is an awful lot of very specific expertise that we can draw upon to say, oh, is this, a, is this an issue? Do we need to do some further investigation on this? And at that point then, that sort of soft data will usually inform the more statistically based evaluation that mm. people like Georgina will do yeah. during the during the question paper review. Can yeah. I just ask on that? We had Raquel on um, in season mm. one talking about how she's managing all this this Twitter info that's coming in. And she talked about if it seemed there was a problem in a paper, she's straight on the phone to somebody. So if, if there's a history issue all kicking off, is she straight on the phone to you? Are uh, you the first point of contact there? Absolutely. And you are on the morning of the exam or when the exam has started or the immediate period after it's finished you are looking at the phone and hoping <laughs> that nobody is going to, to talk to you or ring you. It's that, never good news when that phone oh, rings, it's, is it? It's, yeah? it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling when you get through that day without anybody actually saying, oh, <laughs> you need to come down to the to the bunker. <laughs> and I do remember one of um, Georgina's colleagues who I worked with in previous years, I went down on the day of the exam to ask him a completely incidental, very non-important question. And the poor, the poor man nearly lost his life when he saw me because his immediate <laughs> assumption was something has gone terribly wrong. And he was furious with yes. me when he found out mm. it was something like, have you got change for the Coke machine? <laughs> <laughs> Georgine, if I could just come back to you. Uh, we haven't spoken about numbers for about 30 seconds, okay. so I start getting a bit on edge at this point. Um, I'm interested in what are you looking for that gives you a sense that a question has performed well? What, what's in the data that suggests it, it's doing what it should do? We do have to look at everything individually really what we're looking at is what was our intention what did we intend for the assessment to do and did it then do that I mean the most important thing for us with any assessment is that we have rank ordered the students appropriately because that's actually what assessments are intended to do so we would be looking at things like the standard deviation for the overall paper. But good standard deviation, it means we have managed to spread those students out over all the marks that are available. If we don't have a good standard deviation, then that would be a place where we'd start to look and say to ourselves, well, why did that happen? We do then go into quite a lot of detail. So we might also look at the question level distributions. So if we saw that a large number of students, larger than expected, were getting zero marks, we might ask ourselves why that is. If it was a high demand question, then we might expect to see that anyway. Yes. If it wasn't intended to be of high demand, we would go back and look at the question and say, well, how did we write it? What language did we use? What was the area of content? Sometimes we might look at it and say, well, actually, it's a really hard area of content for students anyway. So even though it wasn't intended to be high demand, it was just hard for them. Michelle, if I can come to you on this, um, how much of this data and insights get, gets back to teachers and, and how do you get it back to teachers? Because this sounds like really important, interesting stuff that teachers need to know. So well, what's the line of communication there? The three chairs, in this case, biology, chemistry and physics, we work very closely together we will be looking for those common patterns and common issues that we're seeing around question topic areas or types. So typically in science across all three disciplines, we are seeing that maybe required practical questions. Students aren't 
maybe accessing those as well as we would expect, considering they are required with the specification. But in a subject like science, we've got hundreds of examiners. So the team leaders will be feeding back to the lead examiner as well what they're seeing. So you're getting a lot of information about the questions where students maybe aren't attempting it as well as you would expect. And that goes into the examiner's report. Owen, just just, just on that, is it, is it just the questions that you're analysing here? Does the mark scheme come under scrutiny in this kind of review process? Absolutely. Oh, really? <clears throat> so nothing's off, nothing's off the table here? Um, yeah, sorry, I went to Darth Vader there. <laughs> Every single aspect of the assessment and the specification, it's not that it's all up for grabs, but we do scrutinise it to see if, it, if it's working in the mm. way that it was intended to work. And I think, you know, no spec or no assessment is perfect. So if we can make changes that we think will benefit teachers and students and still maintain the objectives of the assessment and the specification as it's set out, then we'll make those changes. This year in history, as a result of the review, there was an improvement to be made in terms of adding more time onto the examination. After the question paper review, if we are looking to make a change, we will chat with Ofqual, we will submit to Ofqual, we'll run their ideas by them. And if they say that seems OK, then working in partnership with them will then make the improvements to the assessments that we once made. And as a result, this year, we did add 15 minutes onto the examination from the 2019 exams for GCSE. I just, just want to come back to this notion of using data. I can picture how it would... You could analyse the questions. How on earth do you analyse a mark scheme with data? At the review process, it's it would be someone from the curriculum team. There'd be senior examiners there and there'll be an assessment design manager there and any other relevant staff from AQA. And it's actually, I think it's the, the input from the senior examiners is very, very important in saying, OK, the way that this mark scheme is written or the way it has been interpreted is perhaps leading to an effect that we don't want in the way the question is performing. So the directions in the mark scheme, the you know, in history, we have an awful lot of levels of response mark, mm. mark schemes. So and, the, and history is also quite, you know, it, we, we have a mark scheme, but there is a judgmental uh, facet to marking in history, as there is in any sort of essay based mm. subject like English or even parts of geography as mm. well. And that means that if, if, if there is a judgmental element to the mark scheme, we really do want it to be as clear as possible and also as positive as possible so that we have huge bunching of marks at the bottom yes. and we can't discriminate. So the wording of the mark scheme mm. would come under scrutiny like that in the light of the data that we'd see. Wow. I think after the review process, obviously we're into question writing mm. and maybe not everyone is as clear that actually we spend a lot of time commenting and refining that mark scheme. So a lot mm, of yes. my comments and a lot of my questions in meetings will be around this question doesn't elicit this mark scheme, it doesn't elicit mm -hmm. this point, and we work on the wording or the mark scheme's not right. So there will be just as many comments about the mark scheme mm. Wow. to get it right as there probably is about the question paper. Mm. Georgina, I'm back to you um, on this one here. How do you analyse the aesthetics of, a, of an exam paper? And the re reason I'm asking this is we, we've had a question on Twitter from um, at Sheena2907, and she says specifically, how do you judge the space given for answers? In terms of the answer space, there is a, a rule of thumb in terms of the answer space that we have. It's usually a number of lines per mark, but we are able to go out 
side of that if we think that students are actually likely to write quite a lot. So we would make the answer space a little bit bigger. The answer space is actually important, though, because students are looking to us to guide how much they should write. So it's really important that we don't put too much space in there. Otherwise, they might think, well, well, I've kind of written everything I think I know, but there's still another five lines to go. So I'm going to have to keep writing, keep filling. We don't want to waste time doing that when they should be moving on to another question. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a fine line. Um, but that's something else that we do take feedback on year to year. So we'll look at the number of additional pages that came in, i.e. the number of ah, students who yes. wrote an additional pages outside an answer booklet, if that exists, because that's an indicator that we didn't get the spacing mm. right for the, the, the answer yes. space right for the students. And I think as well have sometimes had in geography where we have questions under figures or graphs Mm, students mm. can quite often miss those out if we haven't put enough white space between the graph and the question so we have to be really careful Um, we also look at things like making sure that the source and the answer space are on facing pages so that's why you'll see answer booklets where you've got page one and two and then there's a blank page that has the big line through that says yes. this is a blank page do not write in this space and then it opens onto another double page we do that on purpose so that students don't have to flick back yes if they have to refer to a source we've gone through this review process do you have any practical examples of how it's led to improvements in in future series i think the thing that springs to mind for science and that we get comments about is when you've got questions targeting assessment objective too so that's students ability to apply oh yeah their knowledge and understanding like carrots coming into play by any chance <laughs> I, I mean it wouldn't be a podcast without carrots would it right. <laughs> um, this year it was the axolotl which it was the what, what axolotl never heard of that one no Ax- had lots of children <laughs> there, there lies the problem <laughs> no we gave them a pi- actually the students answered the question it, it performed quite well because we gave them a diagram but we do know that those type of questions from all of the reviews cause more problems than others so as a result of review we do spend a lot of time throughout the whole process really checking that the context that we've got it as simple and clear as possible so the context Mm. isn't getting in the way of students demonstrating their knowledge and understanding it's a difficult one because we obviously because of the off-qual rules that were laid out for all awarding body specifications in science we have to ask those questions but we don't want to choose a context that's we think is really exciting and interesting but actually is just too complex for students if there's another way of asking it so i think a focus on those ao2 questions is something that we've been looking at as a result of review. To end, Owen, let, let me come to you. If we've got teachers listening to this who think, I really want to benefit from the work that's going on in this in this review process, what, what, what's the kind of key takeaway? Well, what, what should teachers be doing or thinking about as a result of the work that you and your team do at AQA? Firstly, if they have an opinion on the exam, is it positive or negative, contact us, let us know. There are particular social media groups where teachers uh, gather together and foment um, (laughs) (laughs) tell us about it the other thing is if if you do get through to people on my team in the main we're all ex-teachers I mean I think the curriculum team in AQA is essentially a kind of a a home for bewildered ex-teachers, to be honest. Um, and we, we get, you know, we get an awful lot of feedback. We try to make sure as far as possible that the people who set the papers and mark the papers get that feedback. 
over the course of the summer, let's say for A-level history, we may get 25 or 30 emails a year. Mm. Well, at the, at, you know, when we see examiners, we do share this stuff mm. with them. Sometimes mm. it's not very easy reading for them. Sure. But it's always good for them because they are at that point at the process of thinking about next year's exams or, or the exams two years down the line. Mm. That information does get passed on. So do call us, do contact mm. us. And also, you know, if you did like the exam, it's always nice to get a, an email like that as well. <laughs> and they do yeah. come in. They're yeah. far, far, far more rare. But, you know, it's uh, it's it's still something that that feeds into the review as well. I would suggest that teachers look at the enhanced results analysis tool on EAQA. Obviously, when I worked in school and when I worked with schools, that's one of the things we look at because that programme will allow you to look at certain question types for your cohort. There might be something that teachers can consider in their department and the way they're approaching their teaching that they could alter for the, the next cohort going through. Fantastic. Well, once again, I'm enlightened here. I'm, I'm reassured that so much thought goes into this review process. Yeah. I'm excited in the fact that as a teacher, I can share my opinion and it will be listened mm -hmm. to. So, Georgina, Michelle and Owen, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Fantastic. you. I have to say, I'm impressed by this desire to dissect every detail of the previous exam series in the hope of making the next one even stronger. But as teachers, we can't rest on our laurels and assume that our teaching should stay the same each year. I think it's vital that we have a similar ongoing review process too. I'm off to meet Louisa Cotterill, Head of Humanities at Ulster Academy, to find out how individuals and departments can use data to monitor performance throughout the year. I'm dead excited about talking about how you analyse data and your, and your students' results. Before we get into what you do now, how has it changed over the years? And, and the reason I ask is because this is my 15th year of teaching. And when I, when I think back to those first couple of years, we didn't have half the things available, mm -hmm. tools for analysis that we used to have. And it was a bit of a flipping nightmare. Yeah. Is it the same for you? What, what did the analysis used to look like? You're right. Things have massively changed. So when we were first looking at data, you look at what the school had from the exam boards. Yes. And you wouldn't have the exam pro stuff from the exam yeah. boards as well. And so you were sort of second guessing what the exam officer gave you. And sometimes you'd think to yourself, well, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do with that. Yeah, I, I, looking back, you know, I don't know how I survived no. with that because you didn't have anything. You didn't have those pupil no. level, question level analysis. You didn't have any of that. It was a bit of a guessing game, wasn't yeah. it? So t tell me what you do now. And I want to go as, as specific as possible. Do not hold back here. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what, what what's the first thing that happens and, and when does the process start for you? Well, we literally start on the next day after GCSE results. Right. So I've got all the data on CISTRA and straight away I'll be looking at what is the areas we need to improve, you know, what things do we need to look at that aren't really helping us to be successful. And how are you getting those areas to improve? What are you looking for there? And the, the reason I ask this is, 
there's a danger that just because kids have done really well on one question yeah. on a certain topic, but not so well on another question, because the exam's only assessing a small portion of the domain of the whole subject, you kind of overreact in a way and yeah. think, oh God, that's a disaster area. Oh, we can relax on that. Does that make sense? It does make sense completely because I've been doing some Ceph work today. So pre- well, what's Ceph? Our subject evaluation form. I like it. Ceph, yeah, yeah. nice. It's my favourite part of the job. Is that I've it? Been, <laughs> I like the, yeah. I've got three to write. I love it. Do you love it? And you're not being sarcastic. No, you love I'm being a, sarcastic. All right. <laughs> RE, RE Geography and History. Oh, right. wow. And they're oh, 26 God. pages long. Wow. But and there's no that, copying and pasting no, going on between But that them means them. I know the kids inside now. Right, OK, yes. And it also means I can look at what exactly... The middle ability for us... Yes. You know, in history and geography this year... Yes. ...was the area that we need to look at. And as much as I think it sometimes is a chore, it's yes. not, because I can see exactly what we need to do. We knew we needed to target the top end seven to nine. So we thought about what we were doing. Were we challenging kids? Are we like pushing them? Yes. Are we giving them extra responsibilities in class? Who's involved in the process of review? Is it just you as head of department? Or no, it's all of us. Everyone. So talk me through the practicalities. Are you sat around a table? Are the biscuits, cups of teas involved? Yeah. Well, what's happening there? So the first, obviously the exam day. Yes. It's us. It's my second and me thinking about what we need to do. Cause and this is the day after results. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Gareth is my second and he's head of history as well. So we sort of think, what do we need to disseminate to our other staff? So this is still on this this Friday um, after results yeah. day. So the rest of the department aren't involved at this stage, is that right? Not yet. So then what practical things are you putting in place to, to pass on the insight that you've got from these results to your department? How do you disseminate that info? We have a really tight department that's five members. And I think that's the strength of Ulster as a school. I think across the school we do this so we have meet i have a meeting straight away we have an afternoon that's inset yes so the first morning's results and then yes second half is like subject and we just literally sit there and go through what we need to do what our plans are we're talking about intent implementation and impact as well for Darfstead. so i want my staff to know exactly why they're teaching it it's not about how but why and I'm just picturing, so you get all this, you've got all this data on, on, that, on that Friday after results day. How much of that are you sharing with the department or are you kind of doing a kind of big picture approach, if that makes sense? How specific are you going? We share it with everybody. I think that you need to do that. Mm. I think if you're not inclusive and don't share your data, especially with things like the CEPH, I think people should be able to see that. It's a subject-wide thing. If I've identified that that's not what we need to be doing, then we need to be thinking about what we're doing in the future. So from looking at the past data, are there any examples of concrete changes you've made to your practice going forward? So we've um, implemented some Saturday schools. Oh, wow, okay. um, Which I know is controversial, which is up to the individual teacher. And we're also thinking about holiday school. Just um, on the the Saturday and and holiday revision, are you using the insights that you've learned to determine what goes into this? Yes, I do. We target different groups of students on different days. Oh, right. So they have an invitation that they come in to... And we phone home and it's, nice. it's like a positive thing though. It's not, you know, yes. you need to come into revision. It's like, this is be amazing for you to come in. This will but what you get from it. This is like a five to seven. This is a seven oh, to nine. Wow. And like a topic specific or just kind of grey range specific? Um, topic specific as well, really. Yes. Um, so, for example, in history, last year, the study was leading, I think it was Castles and they were 
went to a castle, they went to go and see it. And then some kids didn't go, so then those kids were invited to come in. I see. It's been so effective at our school. I think it's made the difference. I know it's controversial in terms of time. Sure. Not everyone wants to do it, which is fine, because not everyone has to do it. I remember a, a particular child, I won't name him, but back in the days when it was A-star to G, yeah. like, I got him. He was in my class. And the reason he was in my class was because he had a target of an A. And that had come from Key Stage 2 SATs. Yeah. And again, I knew it and he knew it. There was not a cat in L's chance he was getting this A, right? Yeah. But we couldn't move him down a set because like, his, target. his target was an A, right? And it was an absolute nightmare. And the poor lad, like he battled and battled and battled. And he came out, I think he, he scabbed a B in the yeah. end. And that was like an absolute miracle um, that that had happened. But these situations always happen with yeah. data, don't they, right? Well, what do you do in those situations? When you've got such a gap, do you, do you stick? With stick to your guns and say, look, this is your predicted grade. Or do you have a quiet word with the kid and say, look, this is just something that the numbers have crunched out, but maybe something more realistic is this. What, what, what yeah, do you do? I think that's what we do. So, for example, I had a student this year. He was predicted a seven. He's probably on a five. I just thought, I need to speak to you. I need to say to you, doing really well. Yes, this is, yes. This is the best, you know. He had loads of outside commitments. He was doing drama. He was doing mm. the play. Mm. I thought a five was going to be yeah, amazing yeah. for him yes to get him to sick form to do what he wanted and then he got a six so you'll take that yeah because he believed in himself yes rather than being aspirational and looking around and thinking i can't get a seven yes yeah. that's interesting I've been, I've been doing a lot of thinking particularly for this series about about the notion of, of valid assessments mm. and indeed we've got an episode coming up later in this series about assessment validity oh, and it genuinely is like i say this to my wife i say i'm, I'm doing validity she's like oh god i've <laughs> fallen asleep before i get to the end of the sentence but i absolutely love it and i just think back to kind of my practice where where i'm either making up assessments myself or grabbing them from god knows where or giving out past papers you know like a, a year before the kids yeah. will be taking them and I've just started to really question how much reliable data can I get from those given that these things one are just written by me or mm. are designed to be taken by somebody you know at the end May and June of year 11 is that something that's you really you can interesting to? I had to really question that this year because we went to a system of having to have end of year assessments for every year group. Right, okay. Because our school thought it'd be good to get the younger ones practised with sitting in the hall. Yes, just, yes, yes. Which has got its own implications for mm. workload, mm, which is course. a different story. Yep. But for year 10, 9 and 11, it didn't work because we were effectively doing end of unit assessments. Yeah. So what I've decided to do in humanities across the board is that we'd, we're just doing an end of unit because I, I didn't find that data. It yeah, was it was tricky, useless it? Next, last year. If we just move away from this big mm -hmm. data thing that we get from the, the high stakes GCSE mm -hmm. and A-level exams and so on, what does your data collection look like throughout the we year? Have, we have three lots of data at school before the exams. So we've got the mocks and we've got best case and gut feeling. Are they just hot, uh, integer values? So you bang a seven in, a six and a six, or will you go... So the mock is obviously based on the actual data. The yeah. gut data is based on what you actually think. Yes, and so just to a nearest whole level? Yeah, you go nearest right. whole level. Yes, yes, yes. And then the best case is the same. How often are you doing that? And, and... Well, we used to do it every eight weeks. Right, okay. But we went to, we've gone to sort of every half term now because it was becoming unusable. You know, it was just not, not mean anything. So what we've decided as a school is that it's not 
worthwhile doing a mid-unit, an end-of-unit, mm. an exam, mm. and then do an end-of-year exam. It was mm. just becoming data for a sake of data. Yes, yes. And parents were getting data that basically said on track, above track, yeah, below track. Yes. And we didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah you, can, there, you yeah. know what I'm talking about. I 100% do, yeah. So at the moment, I feel like we've got it right because we're just going, we're stripping it right back to one assessment a unit. Yes. Every eight weeks, which is fine. Yes. Because that's teacher-led. doesn't have to be exam-led. Right, okay. So it's your teacher judgment. Yes. And then we've got one at the end of the year that's exam. And from these end-of-unit things, what data are you collecting from, from those? I look at it against their target grade, and I have a conversation with each of them because we've gone to more verbal feedback. Oh, okay. Each of these students? Yeah. I know I put something in their books, but yes. I do talk to them as well. But I'm conscious of the fact that I don't want students to think that's just what they've got. Yes. Because yes. it's one exam. Yes, I see. And when you've got really high ability students, which you've got a few that are predicted eights and nines, mm. if they see they've got a six, they're like, yeah, you need to make sure they're still motivated. Of course, of course. And at the bottom end, they find it okay. They don't worry so much. Mm. But the top end at our school, they do. I love data and it seems like you, you love a bit of data yeah. as well. Is there a danger that there's too much data yeah. bombing around? And, and how does that, what, what kind of problems does that create? I think sometimes people get so hung up on different groups of data you know subgroups whereas if you're a good teacher you're teaching the kids well you need to know about the subgroups I think the class context sheets we have to do at school that's invaluable because mm. you know about them but I'm not sure we need to be drilling down it to that much Banding is rubbish. I don't understand banding for a start. I don't know why I have to talk about banding on myself. So to finish, if we go, if we think back to reviewing assessments and, and data in general, so we'll have kind of two groups of people, I guess, listening listening to the show. We'll have teachers and we'll also mm. have heads of department, heads of faculty. And obviously, you know, you play the role of mm. both. What advice would you have first for, for a teacher in terms of making the best use of the information and the review process from that they get back from, from a high-stakes exam like a GCSE? I think they need to have a really good relationship with their head of faculty That's and head of department. I think there's no benefit of not using their expertise. Mm. I think you have to intrinsic plan. I think you have to integrated plan. I think if you look at your own class, that's fine. But if you're a new teacher, you need to have your guidance of your head of department. Yes. You need to sit down, look at that data. You need to have a plan. Likewise, then, as a head of department or faculty, what would your advice be? That would be the same. And instigate those conversations. Yeah, we've had, so. like, I've had that conversation with my second and we've, we all need to sit down and think, well, what is the purpose of the curriculum? What are we doing? What does this data mean? And I think also, which is most important, I think we've done this this year at our school, is to share the improvement plan with your department. Because mm. in the past, it's just been a, a, a subject leader document. Yeah, that's right. That actually. nobody else can access. And again, the, the, the key's in it, improvement. Yeah. This is your... It's your subject. And it's the practical things that you're going to do based on what you've learned exactly. from what's happened in and the if past. If you don't share that with your subject, then you're not going to improve. That's what we've done. A massive change at our school is like it's open now. Do you know what? That's interesting. I, I wonder how for how many schools and departments that's true where, yeah, all, where all the members of the department have seen that yeah. improvement plan. I bet it's not. I bet it's not as well, no. you know, and, and, and as we say, that is that is the improvement and that's the thing that's come from this assessment review If you process. don't talk about your targets, there's no point in having them. That's a good sound. <laughs> what, a, what a good way to end that. <laughs> that's you. fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure I talking so. to you, Louisa. I've, I've learned absolutely loads. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Well, I've come away from that chat very clear that sharing data and the emotional load 
within departments is key to a successful review. If you want to visualise the assessment design review process, head to the podcast show notes where you'll find a graphic showing how question papers get produced. Owen also mentioned level of response mark schemes. If you want to know more about those, or indeed any other type of mark scheme, you might just find episode 7 of series 1 pretty enlightening. I'll be back in two weeks' time, getting answers to more of your questions. But in the meantime, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also join the conversation and ask your own questions on Twitter using hashtag InsideExams. Until next time, goodbye.